Hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast. My name is Anna Cusack and today I am hosting Dr. Michaela Couch. She is a proud Bundjalung woman and she is going to be bringing us her wisdom and insights into the other side of COVID, not from the patient perspective, but from the doctor in the hospital, what her views on things are. So welcome, Dr. Michaela. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure. First of all, I'd like to pay respect and acknowledge um, the elders on which the land I stand on today, which is the Wyable people in the town of Lismore. And I'd like to acknowledge all the fantastic mob who are out there doing great work and who are the future leaders of today. I'm a Bunjalung woman from Tweed Heads. I grew up there with my brother and my mom and my nan, who was like our, our matriarch and who looked after all of us. And I then moved to Sydney to study medicine and stayed there for around 12 years, worked there for a while. And now I'm back on country living in Lismore, working and um, working in the hospital, looking after pregnant women and women's health. And I also help look after all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who are pregnant. Um, and I love my job. I'm so grateful and so lucky to have my job. It's something that I'm really passionate about and I love talking about it. So it's good to be here. Oh, I am so glad to have you and so glad that there is someone as passionate in the hospital system who is also part of the community who, who need your care. So, so wonderful to have you in many respects. I have a few questions today that have been sent in by some of my listeners. And the first one that I'll ask is we're hearing a lot about people needing to be hospitalised and then also saying, and then this number of people are in ICU and this many people are on a ventilator. What does it actually mean to be in ICU and what is a ventilator? What else are people hooked up to? Are they usually in a coma? Like, can you explain some of this for us, please? Yeah, of course. So in a hospital system, there's kind of a stepwise pattern where we look at a patient as a whole and we say, are they able to look after their own cardiovascular system and respiratory system on their own? So are they able to look after their heart, their lungs, their blood pressure, their heart rate, all those things on their own? And if there's any signs in their heart rate, respiratory rate, temperature, blood pressure, that they aren't coping on their own, then we would need further assistance from someone like an intensive care unit. Now, infections are one of the main reasons that can cause increase in your heart rate, decrease in your blood pressure, increase in your temperature, and can put you into a state of shock. Now, if you're not coping on your own with antibiotics and fluids, we may then say, well, you may need to go to intensive care. And that's because they have medications there that help with blood pressure. They have medications there that can help open your lungs. They have medications there that can um, you know, deal with things that we can't on the ward because they need very specialist monitoring. And those monitoring devices are in the intensive care unit. So that can be looking at things like um, oxygenation, like whether or not enough oxygen is going through the body. It can also very rapidly and very clearly document your blood pressure um, through certain devices. Um, and so there's specific devices within the intensive care that will help you stay alive, basically. Now, if you need to be ventilated, 
that's saying that your oxygen levels are so low from whatever the cause is that you aren't coping on your own and you are needing assistance. So that would be by putting a tube down your throat and providing oxygenation and removal of carbon dioxide for you because you're unable to do that on your own. So you're quite unwell if it gets to that stage. It's not like a you jump straight into hospital and then all of a sudden, you know, if you're going straight onto the ventilator, that's not a good sign. That means that you're quite unwell and you're not able to look after your body on your own. Now, what medications they have to give to make you be able to tolerate a tube down your throat. So if you put a tube down my throat right now, I would be gagging and pushing you off me and saying, stop touching me. Like I'd be like, oh. So we have to actually give you medications to sedate you so that you're suitable for us to basically be able to ventilate you safely. We also may have to give something like a paralysis device or some sort of um, pain relief option to help us to put that tube down because you can imagine it's quite uncomfortable. It's not something that we would be able to tolerate being awake. So there's a few different things that are involved. And the whole time while you're in ICU, we're looking at parameters like your blood pressure, your heart rate, fevers, oxygen saturations. There's a big overall picture that we're trying to look at. And there's lots of systems involved that we're trying to keep under good health, basically. It does sound like it. And so as it goes from somebody being able to breathe and take care of their oxygen and carbon dioxide on their own, and then a next step might be with like nasal prongs or mm -hmm. a mask on or something like that. And then the ventilator is kind of the last ditch kind of yeah. breathing effort. Yeah, definitely. So it's a, it's a stepwise pattern and you've got it correct there. Exactly what you're saying. There's some other devices like positive pressure ventilation that can also help with breathing. So that's another step in between there. So the nasal prongs then the mask, then the positive pressure. And that would be used in people that have other respiratory problems like um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease from smoking or any problems like that. Um, and then intubation and ventilation. Mm. So as well as the tube down the throat, because people are sedated, they would then also need a catheter for urine. Yep. Something for feces, they'd need IV drip for hydration and probably a nutrients. Yeah. Yep. So they can't look after any of their bodily functions. We would need to look after all of them for the patient. Yeah. And depending on how many days that is, it depends on duration as well as also, you know, how much nutrients you're putting into the body, how much you're getting out. It's quite a specific system that we look at. Yeah, it's a delicate balancing act by the sound of it and all happening while someone's very ill. Yeah, so that's why it takes, doc it takes doctors 12 years to become specialists in that area. It's not something you can just walk off the street and become. It's very hard. Yeah, and the staffing ratio is one nurse to one patient all the time in ICU, isn't it? It's really like highly monitored because it's so touch and go. Yeah, it's so important to have one-to-one -one nursing in ICU because the patients are so ill and there's such a high requirement for care. 
What are some of the risk factors for COVID or comorbidities that might make this disease worse for some people than others and may kind of predispose those people to needing such high intensity care as hospital or ICU? Basically, I've looked up all of the risk factors for severe disease on the most up-to-date um, database. So that's basically the most up-to-date database that we have for medical practitioners. And so for COVID risk factors for severe illness, the risk factors are increasing in age, several comorbidities. So that means if you have other medical problems that can come into play, that would be cardiovascular disease, so heart problems any diabetes, any type of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so lung problems, cancer, chronic kidney disease, any solid organ or stem cell transplant, obesity and smoking. So it's quite common for you to have one or more of these comorbidities if you're over the age of 45 or 50. It's quite common for us to say that our parents actually do have all of some of these problems, if not all. We're also increasing our obesity um, numbers in Australia. So quite a lot of us are having one risk factor for having severe illness. So this is why vaccinations are so important because we think, oh, no, we're fine. We're going to be fine. There's no issues. Basically, it's not the case. You know, we have to think we need to look after ourselves. We need to look after the community. We need to look after our elderly and vaccination is the best way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most vaccine hesitant groups are people who are pregnant or trying to conceive and breastfeeding is kind of the next hesitant group in under 45s after that. I saw some statistics out of the UK that were saying one in six people in the ICUs at this point are unvaccinated pregnant mm -hmm. women. Is that something that sort of started coming through in Australia that you know about or? I think that we're lucky that we've had COVID late. We've had the benefit of the UK and America, both very highly qualified medical systems having to have COVID more than us. And so we have a lot of research that's come out of the UK and the US, which is trusted research that we are using for our pregnant women. Luckily, like we're very lucky that we have had COVID so late really in the piece. And so our research is up to date and it's valid and it has very large numbers because huge numbers of people are getting vaccinated. Um, in the US and the UK because of the severity of the illness there. In Australia, we only have the really start of the COVID episodes to come now. We should be starting to see numbers increase, unfortunately, with the lockdown ending. And who knows what the numbers will be for our women. It's a bit scary to think of that. All pregnant women should get vaccinated. We know that over 130,000 people in the US have had research done that shows that there's no increase in any problems for pregnancy for pregnant women to get vaccinated. So there's no reason not to get vaccinated. We know there's no, re no increased risk of any problems like stillbirth, no problems like 
any congenital malformations or any problems with the baby. We know that if you do get COVID in pregnancy, you're more likely to have preterm birth. You're more likely to have a cesarean section. You're more likely to have admission to hospital, admission to ICU and needing ventilation. So there's some serious reasons why you should get vaccinated and there's been no proven evidence of any problems coming from vaccination to your baby or to yourself. Mm. And that seems to be regardless of which trimester you're getting vaccinated as well from what I've been reading. So if you're pregnant or trying to fall pregnant, COVID is here. It's here in the regional centres now. It's here in the cities. You need to get vaccinated to protect yourself and your baby. Mm. Sound advice. Do you have any advice for people who are parents already with kids who might have medical issues um, because obviously children under 12 at this point can't be vaccinated. They're thinking about, you know, schools opening back up soon. Sports might be back on too. Yeah, so I asked my paediatrician friends about this because I don't see kids all the time and I think it's really important to get the right information. So I asked four of my paediatrician friends and they've basically said that each parent needs to take it on a case-by-case -case basis, that they need to speak to their GP and see if it is suitable for the child to return to school and to activities, and also to keep aware of what's happening around them, see what the COVID numbers are, if they're linked to any um, events or any schools near them, um, and they really need to keep up to date with that. Um, so there's no real blanket um, advice to be given to these parents because each child is different. And obviously each child is mm. precious. We don't want them to be exposed to anything um, unnecessarily. So it's not something I can give an answer on specifically for all, for all women and parents. Yeah. And I think people are sort of concerned about the social side. They've been like perhaps kept separate from their peers for a long time, but also for the sake of the few extra months that it might take for a vaccine for that age group to be available, you do have to weigh it up mm. case by case, as you say. So I, I believe the, the safety data for Pfizer and perhaps Moderna as well has been submitted in the US for that age group. So hopefully it's not too long until we see something happening here in Australia as right. well for those kids who are vulnerable. I agree. Why do you think rural communities in general and Indigenous communities in city and regional areas are reporting lower vaccination rates than the rest of the population. And like, why is this such a big problem? Well, there's a few reasons that I've, um, that I'm wanting to talk about because it's such a big question and rural and regional Australia is so big of an area to cover. So there's like quite a lot of different reasons. Um, I'm in the Northern Rivers and we have a very high anti-vax community here. So our population is not at 80% or 70% even vaccinated. And then I haven't seen any data saying how much our community is vaccinated because I think it would worry people to know that we're probably only 40% or 30% vaccinated in this area. So so that's that's your geographical region that's not specific to Aboriginal community. That's, that's just, just the northern, around that Northern yeah, Rivers so area. So Byron Bay, Tweehead, 
yeah. Lismore, Grafton, all of that area. Um, today alone, we were told that 12 new cases were in the northern New South Wales area, which is a lot of cases for our area. If we come and look at this in a few weeks' time, that's going to be 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 cases. My worry is, is that we have a small hospital here. We don't have a big hospital. Our hospital is always full. It's not like we can produce beds out of thin air. We don't have space. We are going to struggle. It is very scary. Yeah, and you don't have, you can't just like magic new staff that are highly trained in what's needed out of thin air either. And the other problem is people don't think about things, but once you live in a small town, once COVID comes, well, it's going to affect your services as well because simply I went to go to the post office yesterday and the post offices were all closed because they were exposure sites. So there was no post office. Like that's just one thing, let alone like we're in a small town. So, you know, we're just going to be more affected in different ways and it's going to get worse. So I'm not, I'm not too happy about it. Um, in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there's so many things that have happened in terms of vaccinations and there's a lot of reasons why the vaccination rate was low. To start with, we weren't really given enough information early on in the piece and we were kind of neglected in terms of the COVID vaccination rollout. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people unfortunately do suffer multiple comorbidities and as we know have a lower um, life expectancy than our non-Indigenous counterparts. So it's very important that we, as you know, unfortunately a dying nation, need to be protected against things like COVID because all of our numbers are very important for keeping our culture alive. So there was a lot of reasons. And then also the rural and regional people didn't have access to the vaccinations as much as the Sydney and city people did. They were all diverted. And then once the outbreaks happened, then they were re-diverted back to the country. So there's a few reasons. Not only that, but the country people start to think it's a city disease. I've heard that quite a lot where people just say, oh, it's in Sydney, it's not coming here, we don't need to get vaccinated. Well, actually, now that Sydney's out of lockdown, we are getting COVID and it's really scary because not many people are vaccinated, and especially for the elderly community. They don't need to be exposed to COVID. The main concern for me as a doctor is that, unfortunately, this outbreak and once the unvaccinated people come out of outdoors after December... <laughs> we are then going to be even more exposed to COVID numbers and our numbers in the hospitals are going to increase. I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen for the hospital system, understandably. And that includes our pregnant women as well as um, our unborn babies. You know, just from our point of view, we've had a few cases actually where it's um, a presumed COVID close contact. So we have a few issues where that's the case. We have to wear full PPE, head to toe. We have to separate the patients. The patients have to get a single room. There's a whole process behind it. And there's been a few times where if you are a COVID positive patient or COVID presumed positive patient, 
once you're a COVID presumed patient, you're basically separated from the rest of the patient. After that, if any emergency happens, we have to then get in our full PPE, which takes around two minutes, save the person who's having a medical emergency. It adds to time and that adds to their care. It's a big worry. It's, it's something that can affect all women. It's not something that can affect no one. It's here. It's not going away. And as a doctor, we can't do anything about it. Oh, just that like foreboding anxiety. So there's a high percentage of people in your area that are compared to other areas that are not interested in being vaccinated. Yeah. A lot of what I hear out of those communities is that they're kind of saying, well, like if you're vaccinated, why does it matter if I'm vaccinated or not? Like, why is that a concern to you? Mind your own business. Yeah, so that's the other thing we haven't talked about, which is herd immunity. So we don't have herd immunity here because we aren't 70% vaccinated. We don't have it. We are like a sitting time bomb for COVID to explode basically. The whole New South Wales is has herd immunity, but not in the smaller areas where there's gaps. So that's what we're seeing in Grafton at the moment. Grafton's having an increased amount of patients with COVID. I think their numbers at the moment are 21. And that's quite a big cluster for a small town. Mm. So we'll just expect to see that grow. Yeah, and more virus gives more chance for all people to get it and more chances for it to mutate and all sorts of things that we don't know how it's going to play out yet unfortunately no we have no we have no information on how this will finish you have become involved in a project looking at aboriginal women and pregnancy care during the pandemic would you be able to talk with us a little bit about the research that is underway that you're involved in yeah so basically at the moment i'm trying to get some research started to look at how our covid times have affected pregnancy care for indigenous women in our rural and regional setting and basically the idea is pregnancy care has changed dramatically because of covid so a few years ago, if you were pregnant or expecting, you probably would have had 10 or so visits with an obstetrician or an obstetric registrar at a hospital and been assessed, examined, had your blood pressure taken, making sure all your concerns were addressed. Well, unfortunately, we don't have those liberties anymore because of COVID and a lot of our appointments are going to telehealth. So women aren't being examined, women aren't being given the face-to-face -face interaction, which means that they're not having that reassuring sense of what my hospital is going to look like and being appropriately cared for during their pregnancy. Um, they're having a discussion on a telephone, which can be really confronting and actually quite alienating because you're not really, you know, meeting the person who may deliver your baby, um, which, you know, when you're pregnant, especially your first time, you want to have those connections with someone because you're putting a lot of trust into that person. So pregnancy care has changed dramatically. Instead of having an in-person diabetes consult when you have gestational diabetes, it's on the telephone. You're also speaking to the dietitian on the telephone. It's just a whole different care model. You may also have pregnancy appointments lessened because 
we don't have the ability to talk to everyone. So there's a few different things along the way. Obviously, we want to speak to everyone, but you might have, say, five appointments instead of having six appointments. Um, that's happened for some patients. Or they've had can appointments cancelled because of COVID changes in cases, numbers, inability to have patients on site. So, you know, during different COVID peaks, we had to quickly change from inpatient uh, reviews to reschedule everyone to only phone consult reviews because there was a higher percentage of COVID in the area and in the hospital. So we didn't want the patients to be exposed. So there's lots of different behind the scenes things going on. And unfortunately it's affected pregnancy care. And, and unfortunately our Indigenous women have had a different experience of pregnancy care. I really wanted to question whether or not it was appropriate for them, whether or not they thought they were being cared after, what things we could improve on, because COVID's probably not going anywhere for the next few years and our system's going to stay this way for a while. And so we'll be looking and seeing whether or not telehealth's appropriate, whether or not they want any changes to be made to their care for the next few years for the rest of their pregnancy or future pregnancies. So we'll see how we go. There's like no research done on it, obviously, because it's very fresh. And we'll just see what comes up, what answers come up and uh, go from there. Mm, such important work to find, have those conversations for a start and then find what it is that people want. And then, of course, the next challenge, how to provide that within a care model that is yeah. stretched and and still in that COVID environment. So I do wish you and all your mums and people under your care the best for their journeys. And I hope that the next little while isn't as scary for you as, as it sounds like it may be. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Michaela. Where can people find you if they want to follow along with some of the resources that you share? Yeah, so I love my Instagram page. It's where I share as much information as I can on all things, women's health, pregnancy health, men's health, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. And that's doctor.aboriginal.woman on Instagram. So I'd love to have a chat with you there. I always respond to my messages and comments and I'd love to see you there. I hope this episode has given you some food for thought as it did for me. If you enjoyed listening to Dr. Michaela, her own podcast, Black Medicine, is launching soon where she'll be hosting all Aboriginal guests and supporters and talking all things First Nations health. If you would like to leave a rating for this podcast, I would really appreciate that too. As usual, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as Anna Cusack Postpartum and grab my book or check out ways to work with me at annacusack.com.au.